One of the things on New England is that it suffered from, and I, I know you love a lot of old lifts, and I like the cool old ones too, but overall, given the choice, I'd rather have a new one and a faster one and you get more skiing in. And that's happening in New England finally. It's an old ski culture here, so obviously you're going to have long-running lifts, but they needed the investment in new lifts, and now we're seeing it everywhere. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I have an awesome returning guest today and a good friend of the program. First, a quick favor to ask. Please jump over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. What you are listening to right now is just a small part of the storm. There is an article that accompanies this podcast that contains all sorts of additional context on the topics that Sean and I discuss. I am also kicking out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift-served skiing all year long. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it directly to your email inbox instead by subscribing to the Storm Skiing newsletter on stormskiing.com. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. It's here. Ski season is off to a great start in pretty much every region with new resorts opening daily. That means many of us have choices. And we want to know when the snow is coming and where and how much. Personally, I live within a five-hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. Is Western New York getting hammered? Is the J cloud activating? Is a sneaky southern storm going to pull me into Pennsylvania or West Virginia? Or can I make do with the Catskills, Poconos, and Berkshires? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use Open Snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, updated hourly. Resort by resort, snow outlooks. And one of my favorite features... Frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all U.S. daily snows, but you can choose from more than two dozen options focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jacksonville or Mammoth. Open Snow is now a storm partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. And of course, I have more to say about Mountain Gazette. I've been hammering you with this for more than two years now, but no matter what I say, it is not going to whack you on the head as hard as Mountain Gazette when this work of art drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently, and wow. First, the cover. Seth Morrison, Crushing Pile, captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know that there are 22 ski areas in Greece? Greece. There are some amazing pics to prove it too. 
Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and ultimately retire from the competitive free ride circuit. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who is living an inspirational life in a sit-ski after a spinal cord injury, is unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns, too. We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But you really have to see it to understand how good this thing is. My man Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out beautifully in the latest issue when he said, quote, A firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can get in on it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. And while you're there, check out Mountain Gazette's new lineup of mugs, hats, t-shirts, and hoodies. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 110, Sean Sutner, snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com. This is an awesome time to be a ski journalist. U.S. skier visits are at an all-time high. Capital investment is transforming many of our most iconic ski areas. And the mega passes are redefining where, when, and how often people ski. Keeping up can be hard. Sorting out that sprawling and complex world of U.S. lift-served skiing is obviously the mission of the storm. But I am not the only one doing it. And who doesn't value another point of view? So today, we will hear from a veteran of this ski journalism game. Someone rooted in New England with deep sources and deep experience and someone who does it with integrity and consistency. He is a very good friend of the program and a personal friend and mentor of mine. In an era in which a lot of what passes for reporting is just some idiot popping off on Facebook, Sean Sutner is still doing it the right way. Let's go. My guest today has been the snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com for 18 years. Telegram.com is the largest online news source for Worcester, the second largest city in New England. He was the founder and co-coach of the undefeated Worcester Public High School ski race team, which won the Massachusetts State Championship in 2014. He is also the news director for information management in the independent editorial unit at Tech Target, a tech media company. Sean Sutner is my guest. Sean, so good to have you back. Always good to wrap with you. How are you doing on this Thanksgiving Monday? Well, glad to be back. I'm doing great. I have one of those endorphin highs from uh, opening day skiing yesterday at, at uh, Mount Snow, although I can still feel the wind whistling through my helmet. <laughs> so how was it? Tell us about opening opening day 2022 at Mount Snow. I hate to say this. It could be terrible, and I would still think it would be great. Um, I, I hear you. It was, it was, it was, the snow quality was excellent. You know, it was just hard dry, uh, fast snow. Um, it was uh, extremely cold and windy, and I was amazed that the Bluebird Express was operating because sometimes wind shear is a problem, and kept it going, and they had a uh, free fall open on, on uh, the North Face. So I just lapped that until it was just like, you know, firm as it could be, and it was great. So how were, how were lines? How were crowds, Sean? How was the whole vibe there? Oh, well, no crowds because – 
slower than a usual opening day because because of the weather. It was so cold. It wind chill was like five degrees. So mm-hmm. uh, the vibe was was really good. The base lot. It seems like Vale's made Vale Resorts. The owners made a conscious uh, effort to be a little bit more laid back. Mm-hmm. So inside the lot, you know, it was, seemed fully staffed up inside. Like, oh, here's an indication: bag check was open, unlike previous early season. Mm-hmm. Okay, it wasn't, and it wasn't just one of those little things that I, I like bag check. So I, I know you boot up in the car, but I like to boot up in the lodge. Anyway, good, really good vibe. Yeah, that, that's that's good to hear. We'll talk a little bit more about Vale Resorts in a little bit, and and I know they've done a lot this year to to improve things from last year. But anyway. Let's let's talk first about let's go back to last year, Sean, because you laid out a pretty aggressive goal on this podcast. You were going to hit 80 days for the 2021 to 22 ski season. Did you hit that goal? No, uh, I hit six. I fell short. I hit 65. Um, I, I my excuse is I had a couple of injuries, mm-hmm. um, so I hit 65. It was it was a bummer. That, that's, I mean, that's pretty respectable, especially for a guy with a full-time job. What was the uphill and lift served split with that? Oh, okay. It's going to be about 50-50. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I do count it if I just do one or two laps, uh, as long as my skis are moving on snow. And so some days I'll do both, uh, but pretty 50-50. Yeah, I respect that. I mean, look, if you're, if you're going uphill, by the time you get to the summit, you're probably burning more calories the most of us did on our entire day riding the lift. So I look, I, I get it. I respect it. And it, when you do uphill, are you mostly what you said? Do you mix it up? What's your, what's your uphill routine? Oh no. I, I watch you sit during the week, usually hit it and dawn patrol five, uh, five thirty AM. Um, and so if, I want to make this point though, that if you do 65, let's say I did 30, 30 days uphill, that's um, that's 30 runs. And, you know, some days multiple laps. So there's 50 runs. So you do get some downhill and cumulatively. But, um, no, you hit what you sit during the week for, like, workout um, laps. And then usually get a day in on the weekend uh, on resort or off and even some backcountry zones in uh, Vermont. So what do you like? What are your what, what do you recommend for an uphill circuit? Well, I, I like this this little circuit in southern Vermont on the backside of Haystack Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not on the Hermitage Resort, and it's not on Mount Snow. And then there's a there's a ten mile uh, trail connecting um, Haystack Hermitage with Mount Snow called the Ridge Trail, the Deerfield Valley Ridge Trail. So I do that a lot. In the um, you know we skin up the hiking trail up Hermitage, or skin up Mount Snow, and then so it's and then across. So it's about a ten mile skin. So you, you've been on this uphill scene for a long time, and I, I think you said you started doing it for health reasons a number of years ago, and, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, but I'm curious to hear your take on how and, and if the scene has changed across New England over the past few years, because it, it seemed as though with COVID, a lot of people really wanted to get outside and try this for the first time. It's something that I would like to do. I just don't have the gear, and I don't really live close enough to any ski areas for it to be practical and it never really snows around here in a way that that would make it more than an occasional novelty. So from your point of view, just as someone who's really locked into this, how has that scene changed or evolved for the better or worse, I guess, since COVID hit? Well, it's expanded a lot. It went from a a super niche uh, underground marginal activity to to the point at which ski areas are now renting and selling uh, alpine touring equipment. 
ones that never said they would, like Wachusett, for example. Um, uh, Stratton has a full rental fleet of uh, split boards and, and uh, skis. It, it's gone. It's gone a little bit into the mainstream. I mean, it's it's just a it's a fitness activity, just like like running or jogging, but you're on snow and it's a lot more fun than hiking because uh, you ski down. And it's uh, or here's one way it's influenced the mainstream is the equipment design, which was once really esoteric, and it, it's still pretty expensive to get into it. Um, I got into it with used stuff at first, but it's influenced mainstream ski design in terms of lighter lighter boots, uh, walk mode on boots. Uh, a lot of people are skiing on basically 50-50 hybrid boots that are great for downhill and adequate for uphill. So I think it's gone a lot more into the mainstream. And at Wachusett, we have a community of, I estimate, at three to 400 people who do it regularly. Wow. wow. And on any given day, how many will you see on the mountain? Because you'll see some of these scenes out west at Steamboat or some of the other big places where, or A-Base, where there's hundreds of people in the mornings skinning up the mountain. So are, are we getting to that where it's 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 not just an occasional person? It's it's a herd of folks going uphill in the morning? Uh, a little bit. Not not as much as the, 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 the army of ants that goes up Alta early season, but it's... Um, yeah, you'll see maybe a dozen people at a time. Uh, there's different time slots. Some people come at 5.30, 6.30, 7.30 until before the lifts close because you can't do it during the day at what you said. And so um, yeah, you'll see 12, 15 people heading, heading out. So talk a little bit about the dynamic in, in the landscape. So, you know, the upside of it becoming, of uphill and becoming more of a formalized thing, I think, is that the operators have more standard policies and are maybe more accepting of it and maybe less likely to chase you off the mountain. The downside is you do start to get some crowds. You do start to get some, maybe some resentment that you're chewing up the powder early on. And then you also do start to get uphill access fees. So kind of take us through this. How has how that piece of it evolved? And and which places are, are charging now? And which places are the ones you like that are not? Okay, it's... It's a whole, the whole, that whole discussion is, is been the main evolution, you know, going to some form of uh, lift approved uh, skinny. Well, chewing up the powder is, that's, that's the main criticism, you know, from area operators and, and pass holders, because we do, we do chew up the, the corduroy. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no way around it. They can't come and groom afterwards in time for the, the lifts. So th- there's this structural battle between groomers and skinners. It's just not going away. So um, as far as powder, that's 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 the powder hounds are don't like the skinners. But um, the pass system is evolved largely as a way of both monetizing it and handling the liability aspects of it. So Wachusett put in a, a pass a couple of years ago. Finally, before that, it was just uh, free ad hoc, and so it's twenty five bucks for season pass holders, fifty for for non for a season's pass stratton pass is free um it's all over the place bolton valley charges a 15 20 dollar a day bolton valley is like the backcountry mecca it's all over the place vale resorts it's free but you need a pass killington 35 dollars for an armband for the year so it's only a few places have charged uh you know, you have to buy a day ticket to do it which doesn't make it financially worth it and and skinner's really are pissed off about that. Like, I think Canon is one of those. Uh, Berkshire says it's usually nominal fees for skinning. So uh, we dedicated um, skinners, as, as we call ourselves, we welcome it. 
we welcome the, the pass because it, it helps, you know, we pay our fair share. And, and the other thing is Skinners do stick around and use lifts and they do buy beer and breakfast and, and equipment. And so we do contribute to the, you know, revenues. So going into the third kind of post COVID season here, Sean, do you get the sense that this momentum that we're seeing in the uphill scene is sustainable? You think this is, this is something that's here to stay? I do because look at the growth in the numbers of cross country uh, that is sustained as well. Because skinning is something you can. I mean, my first love is is downhill, so skinning is something you can sustain. You know, you can still be a a, a dedicated downhill skier and work skinning into your routine for fitness. Yeah, let's talk about cross country for a minute. And and I actually wasn't going to bring this up, but you reminded me. I've actually been thinking about it because of the Indy Pass. And because they've added all these cross-country skiers, I had no idea, for example, that there was a cross-country skier at High Point right across the river from me in New Jersey. And I've been skiing Mountain Creek, which is about 15 minutes away from High Point, for years and years. I just had no idea. So, you know, I have an old pair of cross-country skis from the 1970s that I got at a garage sale. But I'm thinking about picking up a pair and just why not trying these places because I have the Indy Pass and I have access to them. Do you think that – I know you've been cross-country skiing for a while. What's your reaction to Indy Pass adding cross-country skiing to the pass? Do you think that this could be could help a momentum shift in in uh, in cross-country skiing? I thought that was one of the most fascinating developments uh, that that Doug Fish realized the opportunity there. Um, it's it's really synergistic. I mean, you have you know people who want to do both, and it's a good. It's, it's if it's bad weather out, you can go cross country. If you're a little injured, you can go cross country. I've been I've been cross country since I was a kid. My mother taught me how to do it at uh, Taft Family Lodge, and so um, you know I try to do local as much as I can. But it's it's the numbers were staggering. And and as far as to your point about buying equipment, Stu, you Stuart, you should really go out and get it now because it's flying off the shelves and supply chain problems. You know, I've only, I've only ever cross country skied in New York city. And, and so essentially whenever we get a big storm of, you know, say six or more inches, it's really hard to get out of the city because it takes a while to dig out because there's really nowhere to put the snow. So I can't really go anywhere and ski. So I just kind of ski around the neighborhood. It's really fun, but you know, I use these and these skis are probably 50 years old. They finally broke last year when I was skiing around. So, so I need, I need new ones, but, um, I'll have to pick those up at some point and hope I get lucky, I guess. Well, urban cross country is its own thing and we do it here too in Worcester. It's, it's, it's fabulous. And when my son was in high school, he used to get around the city on cross country skis. A couple really? of years we had a lot of snow just to go to his friend's house or go across town. Or, so you do have to have beaters. Yeah. I have a pair of beaters for that. Yeah, I get some looks for sure. So I know you like to ski around, Sean. I know you, you have your favorites, but I know that there are some ski areas that are still on your list. So going back to last year in the 65 days, that's a lot of days. Did you hit any new for you ski areas last year? And do you have any, any ski areas that you haven't been to yet that you want to hit this year? Ooh, I don't think I hit any. Oh, yes, I did hit uh, the two Quebec ski areas that I'm obsessed with now, uh, Les Massifs and Mont Saint-Anne. I hit both of those and that was, those were both first for me. Uh, and yes, I do. All right. I've not, I, I haven't hit Saddleback yet. I haven't hit Black uh, Mountain of Maine. Those are both something I want to do. 
New Hampshire. I hit Black Mountain the year before last, which is I had never done. I got that on my belt. I want to ride the new J-Bar there this year, the new old J-Bar. Um, Vermont, I've had just about everything in Vermont, but not everything. There's a, there, there's a rope toe in Brattleboro I haven't had, and I've never skied Cochran's. That, that, that pairs nicely with Bolton Valley, and Saddleback and Black Mountain of Maine, of course, are both on Indy Pass now. And you could do a nice little indie pass trip. Do you have that planned yet? Mm, I, I don't know. I don't kind of like – I plan my trips more on the spur of the moment. Um, I have my go-to, and I branch off of that. I uh, I would like to work it in with a trip to back to Quebec. I'm, I'm just, like, obsessed with Le Massif. I want to go back and um, might work it in there. But, um, you know, the, the school vacation week here in the U.S. in February is just a phenomenal time to go skiing in Quebec because you don't, you know, it's not crowded. You mean the February vacation? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Now let's talk about Quebec a little bit because I, the way I kind of frame it and the way I think about it, Sean, is Quebec is basically another New England stacked on top of New England. And New England is already so rich and has so many scariest, but Quebec has just as many scariest as New England. Some of them are huge, like Le Massif. That, that scary actually is really interesting to me as well. It just joined the in, the uh, Mountain Collective Pass, kind of out of nowhere. And I know they have ambitions to to expand more into the East. Talk a little bit about your experience in Quebec last year, why it was so fascinating to you, and what you think the potential is up there, maybe for U.S. ski passes to, to, to move north and give skiers some more options. Well, you're right. I mean, actually, Quebec does have a few more ski areas than, than uh, New England mm-hmm. altogether. But um, – wow. But it is, it is like, it's almost like the balsamous phenomenon. Like, why would you drive back by five great ski areas to get to another one? So that's the problem with U.S. going up to Quebec. So the places have to differentiate themselves. And some of them do it with, have, they have hut-to-hut operations. Some, like, Tremblant has the base village. Um, I think Tremblant is, my apologies to my friends at, at uh, Altera, but I think it's way overrated, Tremblant. Um, and so it's kind of a, a tourist trap when you pack a gazillion Americans into there and it's kind of flat and it can be rainy. It's in the lower part of the Laurentians. My, my thing is once you venture north of the St. Lawrence River, you get a different weather system. And there's a reason for leaving the U.S. because you have, you know, Jay Peak like snow totals. So you, you're going to get a ton of snow at, at Le Massif and Mount Anne and uh, anytime you go, uh, and Le Massif is just, it's just a cool place. All new lifts, you know, run by an, a circus guy. There's a, an element of whimsy to the place uh, and the spectacular views. And it's kind of like Vail. It's, it's all very, you know, blue, uh, blue plus terrain, very doable for the family. Uh, just great vibe, uh, and big. Are you planning on getting there again this year? I think I am. Cause I have a, I have a ski buddy up there who used to be the GM of Le and Mount St. Anne, uh, a great guy named Claude Bedoin, who's basically the guy that got me up there. And he's like a, a living encyclopedia of, of ski history. He's been through it all. And he, he knows the American ski seat too. It's great to ski with and just a phenomenal skier. I mean, the guy's 70 years old and he skis faster than most 40-year-olds I know. So he's a friend. So probably go back up there again. Yeah. Do you think you'll do a little tour and try to hit some of the other areas around there that maybe you haven't seen yet? Yeah, I would like to. I mean, I almost hit Stoneham last year with the, you know, Stoneham, the Wachusett of Quebec City. That's 
on the Epic Pass along with Hudson and and I, I I'm pretty sure that Le Massif is on Icon this year, Icon partner this year. Um, um, it's not. No, just about collective. But yeah. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of other ski places I want to hit that I can't even pronounce. So, but as far as the Eastern Townships, no, those to me are the most Vermont-like. So I think I'll just skip those for a while. And I like to stay up north a little bit, drive a little farther, go a little bit deeper uh, into Quebec. So are you sticking with the 80-day goal this year? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, yeah, I got one. I, I have two in if you count my day at the um, indoor place in New Jersey, Big Snow. Nice. What does the past suite look like this year, Sean? Oh, uh, Epic, Indie, Wachusett, Berkshire East. That, nice. That's, that's, that's the lineup. And my big thing is I'm, I'm racing this year uh, at Wachusett oh, in the night league. Yeah, I, I, I already put in eight years in the night league, and then I retired for 10 years, and now I was recruited by my old high school team that I coached. Like like three-quarters of that old high school team is, is said they needed some old points because in our system – and what you said, they use the NASTAR system, so you get age handicaps. So you have to have a couple of old people on your team to be competitive. <laughs> nice. So how do you feel about being the old guy? Hustle points, they call it. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the old guy because you have to beat the old guy on the other team. Mm. So you okay. both have handicaps, and you don't do your young guys any, any and, and gals any any good if you're not beating the other old guy. But the funniest thing is I dug out my old ski race boots, my atomic like World Cup race boots, and I put them on. It was like being encased in two huge, you know, slabs of concrete. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to upgrade those? No, no, they're, <laughs> no, they're, they fit. They, I, I did buy a pair of uh, newer used racing skis on eBay to replace my old ones. And so, you know, we all, we wax and sharpen. It's pretty competitive. It's, they, it's how they tattered as the biggest night league in the, in the country. I think Buck Hill, Gives them a run for their money on that in Minnesota. There are a lot of good night leagues in the Minneapolis area and around here. But what you said one is just, it's just crazy. It's raucous. It's competitive. It's fun. It's a race to the bar afterwards. It's a community of, you know, a real community of people. So, so talk, let's get into racing, Sean, because this is a big part of your life. It's, it's a part of the sport that I don't cover at all and that I, I know absolutely nothing about. And I know that you have a big passion for this. So, so talk about racing and the importance of racing to recreational skiing. And then where are the epicenters for ski racing in New England in particular? All right. Glad you asked that. Ski racing is – there wouldn't be skiing without ski racing. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say that flat out. And historically, not only was it at the, the birth of the sport, it was tied together with ski racing, but ski racing has always been and continues to be the vanguard of the sport. It, it, it creates the, the turn shapes, the technique, and the equipment that then filters down. It's like Formula One racing. It filters down and becomes is integrated into the larger culture of skiing. So the other thing is about ski racing, so that's number one. You know, you have... Uh, ski technique is born out of ski racing. And if you look at some of the greatest big mountain free skiers of all time, they're all former racers. Changing a little bit now, but almost all of them, you know, with Candide Fauvet, J.P. Claire, Shane McConkey, all came out of racing. So there's that. Then uh, ski racing creates this group of highly committed ski skiers who have the families who 
are important to the revenue of ski areas. They really are because the, the race programs themselves generate revenue, but so much spinoff effect for the ski areas. It's not negligible numbers. I mean, you have up to a thousand kids at some ski areas in programs and they're ambassadors for the sport. They, they make it not just a sport, but a, but a culture. And it creates excitement around the sport. And it, it shows the, the possibilities of what skiing can be in terms of speed and, and technique. And what do you think are the are the epicenters of this culture in New England? Well, New England is itself its own epicenter. Until I mean, a lot of Western kids come east still to go to the ski academy here. We have the biggest concentration of ski race academies in, in the country. The U.S. ski team now that's tilted back over a little toward the West as they've gotten their own academies. But uh, in New England, okay, so I'll take Adatash, for example. Okay, so when Adidas was sort of on the ropes with Peak Resort, Peak Resort's the previous owner wasn't doing well. Under Vail, it floundered last year. I mean, there was a sense of panic in the in the ski racing community that we'd lose one of our best venues for training and racing. Okay, because um, on Bear Peak, it's almost like a dedicated race center. You have college racing there, you have fest racing there, youth racing. One of the main trails there is almost always closed off for racing. So that's integral to the identity of Adetash. Then uh, Gunstock is another with an incredible emphasis on, on ski racing. And it's uh, they hold New England championships there. And a lot of the guests who you've had on your podcast, the GMs do mention the importance of ski racing. I, I, I'll think of Sun Valley in particular. Pat's Peak. Pat's Peak is a great race hill. Um, Harvard, uh, the Harvard BC uh, ski teams have trained there over the years, uh, Saul. So it's really important. I mean, Pats is super important. Pam Fletcher, our local uh, Olympian, who went to SMS first, trained at Pats. And uh, Stratton is another one with a tremendous race culture. Stratton Mountain School there. Those are just a few. And then Sugarbush in Vermont. And of course, Burke are two world-class ski racing centers. And a significant portion of the people who ski there are racers. So if you look at the evolution of skiing over the past couple of decades, the rise of terrain parks really gave youth an alternative, right? A mainstream alternative where it's not necessarily jumping off cliffs in, in extreme terrain, but there is a terrain park now at just about any ski resort of just about any size. And this type of skiing and this type of competition holds tremendous appeal to a certain personality type and a certain age group. And there, there was a narrative for a long time that this could hold more appeal than racing for a lot of youth. Now that we've had a, a pretty significant sample size of a couple of decades, how do you feel that this free skiing scene, this terrain park scene is evolving alongside racing? And, and have they found a way to get along without cannibalizing one another and, and essentially both be healthy and, and give folks different choices rather than eating each other alive? Well, there's, I, again, I think there's a become a real synergy rather than killing each other. They're like back when our, my kid was racing and our friends were racing, they, they couldn't wait to get out of their skinny suits and into the park. Okay. So, so the best racers were always the ones who, who, uh, you know, developed their creativity and their balance and their feel on the snow by going into the parks. The, the worst, the kids who fell behind were the ones whose parents were rigid and, you know, you can't do that. You know, that to me, it was so, such a dumb attitude. And even now you have kids who do both. 
And, but, but the park scene and free skiing has grown. There was always competition in USSA and then USASA came along, which is the freestyle group. I competed in USSA freestyle when I was a teenager, but I still love racing. And I think they got along fine. I mean, de- definitely organized competitive free riding has grown to the point where a lot of, a lot of skiers have free ride programs, but the, the downfall of either side is when it becomes too regimented and ski racing is inherently regimented, which is what makes a lot of kids want to switch out of there at about age 12. But you take half the guys in the U.S. ski team who can just huck inverted air off of anything. And it's funny, like uh, my son Sam worked in the uh, race department at Jackson Hole after college, right? And one of the reasons the Jackson Hole race program sucks is because no one wants to race on powder days. So, so all the, not only do the racers who are come to compete and pay race fees, just throwing away their race skis and saying, screw this, I'm going to ski powder, but also the whole race department, all the course workers doing the same thing. <laughs> I guess, I guess that's why they put the racing stuff over at Snow King. Exactly. Um, all right, Sean. So you explore all of this stuff and in, in the race scene in particular in your column so I guess let's let's start here. Let's start with last year because we we discussed this, and this is a, a annual column you do from Thanksgiving week through I think April, but you can lay out all the details. So lay out the column when it starts, where we can find it, and how it went last year, and then just talk about what what you have planned for this year. All right. Well, it starts uh, this coming this week on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Thanks for having me on in, in support of that. Runs through April, uh, at which point I'm exhausted. I don't know how you do your your uh, thing, but I have. Last year was actually my best year ever for numbers, like by far. And I a lot of it is like I felt like I had to step up my game because of so many other great ski riders emerging, and there's just a lot now with Substack, you, uh, others. And I just had to make my content maybe – I actually went long rather than short, almost following kind of following your podcast example. I went longer and found out that people kind of want that. And even in my day job, we find out that the Google algorithm has been favoring longer form stuff for certain topics. And so uh, it was my best year ever, I was so focused on getting good photos and stuff for my, my column. And not just ones that I snapped. I actually tried to think about it like – what do I need for this or get good contributing art? And I had been putting off this thing I did on the best bars in New England ski area. So I did that. That was like an eyeball grabber. I might have to revisit that this year. I put in too many great bars and that didn't leave enough room for um, debate. I should have done 10. So this year, I what's on my list? I kinda, I have a story list. Uh well, you know, I, I try to cover snowboarding. I, I don't know if you covered that in your in the storm, but every few years I try to do uh, something on the up-and-coming young snowboarders from our area. And they usually go national or they've gone national already. So um, profiling them. I've got a deep dive into what you it coming up, of course, which I, I haven't interviewed uh, Jeff Crowley in depth for a long time, though I see him around a lot. So I did do that. I sat down with him for, the other day for 45 minutes. And I also talked with uh, one of the top guys in the snowmaking department at what you said. So those two are pretty important. So I don't know. I mean, my column, is, it's not a super ambitious column. I'm a regional. I cover New England, uh, emphasis on Southern New England. Um, and my goal in terms of getting scoops is protect my flank. Like, don't get beat in my backyard. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's so that, 
That's what I really want to do. Just make sure I get my locals covered. You know, I'm going to cover the reemergence of Crotchet. But Worcester people like, to, you know, we're a ski crazy town and people like to venture out. So I'll be covering, uh, you know, if I go out west, I, I'll always find some like local New England connection. I'll try not to write about skinning too much. And I, I try not to write about racing too much. And when I do cover racing, it's not from the point of view of who's winning and who's losing, but more about who's you know, what kid or person is really putting their whole life on the line to do this? More like a human interest. So it's it's not from the competitive aspect. And I do the same for free skiing. I, every year I pledge to do more on cross country and I'll try to do that again this year. So where do folks find it, Sean? You can punch it up on the, on the web on, at telegram.com. You get a couple of free clicks uh, or a telegram and gazette. Uh, with the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Either one will get it to the website. The print newspaper, numbers have declined, but our online numbers are still really good. And you can get it on my uh, my Instagram feed, my Twitter account, and my uh, Facebook account. And what, what's your uh, what's your Twitter and Instagram handle? You know, assuming that Twitter survives till I publish this podcast. Yeah, exactly. At S. Sutter. So it's at S-S-U-T-N-E-R. But, you know... People, Twitter refugees leaving Twitter for Mastodon have said, mm, not very mountain sports friendly over Mastodon. So I, I've heard it's technically difficult as well, and, and I don't have much tolerance for any sort of um, <clears throat> technical complexity. So what, what day does it run in the print paper? Oh, it runs in the print paper Thursday morning, but it always goes online on Wednesday right around uh, drive time, 5 p.m. I'm super pumped to hear that the numbers are strong, Sean, and I hope that whatever good this podcast is, it can help you to continue to push those numbers strong this year. You know, I want to go back to what you said about Wachusett, because I know you have a particular point of view about Wachusett and the impact, kind of outsized impact that that ski area has had on the national ski scene, just as far as setting up a business model that's really sustainable. And, and you, you call this the volume discount model. So lay this out for us and, and how you think that Wachusett, this little regional ski area, has, has sort of outpunched its, its size, so to speak. Yeah, Wachusett does 350,000 plus visits a year. Um, I'm pretty sure that's in the top 20 ski areas in the country. It's, uh, it's way out punches its weight. I mean, it's, it's staggering. Of course, it has night skiing and it has you know, no foul periods during the week like a lot of other places and has seven nights a week for night skiing. But anyway, they they have had for at least 20 years preseason discounted uh, season pass sales. It's called the GPS program, Greatest Possible Savings. And you get a bronze, pretty simple demarcation, gold, silver, or bronze. Two years ago, they introduced the steel pass. So this year I have the bronze, which is seven nights and five days of skiing. Buy it preseason. It's cheap, really cheap, 300 bucks, 270, whatever. And so what you said, Jeff Crowley and company realized many years ago that, you know, you, you get people to commit up front and now you can do your, now you can buy your, your snowmaking guns and you can hire your mechanics earlier and quicker and you have funding. You're not dependent on, on snowfall. And they realized that way before Epic and, and Altera. Uh, I asked Jeff Crowley about that the other day, and he, he actually credited, I think, Bogus Basin for doing the first one. But the way Watchers has marketed it is, is genius. 
and it so works for them. And now in the wake of COVID, they limit season pass numbers. They cut them off pretty, pretty early. And they do, they do try to take care of their pass holders, you know, make sure that they are first class citizens. But that said, they still sell an enormous number of day tickets, not hugely expensive, often coupled with uh, learn to ski discounts. It's like having a mini huge resort. Everything you've skied there, like lower, smaller scale, but everything you'd find at a big, big resort. We're really lucky to have them and have a committed family who, um, I'm going to go right here and say this right now, they will never sell to anyone. They're not selling to Vail. They're not selling to Altera. There's many generations to come. And I don't know this to be sure, but I'm pretty sure that they turned down multiple offers. Yeah. I mean, they have created exactly what Vail and Altera want, which is a really well-run, really profitable, really well-respected, really well-liked ski area close to a lot of people. And we both know that you're not building a new one and there's just not that many. And there's none other in the Boston area that could potentially, like you couldn't expand Neshoba Valley or Blue Hills to be what you said. It just doesn't have that. And you're not going to revive any of the dead ones. So so yeah, they have something really unique. And I'm sure that a lot of listeners are really pumped to hear what you just said, because the Crowleys are really well liked, really well respected. Jeff came on the show last year. And it's really easy to see why folks like that ski area so much. I mean, just knowing them as well as you do, what, what do you think that they're doing, Sean, that other operators could learn from as they as they look to kind of refine their operations for 2022 expectations? Um, I could learn from them, first of all, just friendliness, like Jeff and Carolyn and the other Crowleys and Stimpsons. They're always circulating around the lodge and sitting down and buying you a beer, you know, so they're they're out there. And to this day, Jeff and Carolyn are still skiing in the in the night league. So they participate too. They also, they do a great job of targeting the community where the needs are in the community of skiing, you know, getting never-evers into the sport, disabled skiers, uh, Special Olympics during the week, the senior games, lots of different events. They have a luge day where they set up a luge, free ride program, freestyle program, race program, women's clinics, men's uh, racer clinics. So they tailor things that people want to do and need to do. So it's it's not just, you know, turn on the lifts and, and let them ski. So I went up to what you said last year, had a great day. And, you know, mind you, I'm skiing around with the president of the resort. So, of course, everyone's going to be nice to me. But, you know, I was skiing around without him, too. And, and it was it was nice. And, you know, I, I you'd get on the lift and if someone didn't put the bar down, there would be this nice lady at the bottom saying, uh, chair 87, put your bar down. So then from what you said, I went over to Neshoba Valley. Skied around, you know, everyone's super cool. It was uh, really low key. I actually really liked that hill. I, I, I don't liked how it went off all sides. All the lifts were open. Um, it was, I was kind of hit there before the school rush. So, you know, the sun was out. So it was, it was really laid back. There were no lift lines. Then I go over to Ski Ward and, you know, the place is just not being run by very nice people. And every time, you know, I'm riding up the lift and I always pull my bar down, whatever, right? When I was first started skiing in Michigan as a teenager, there's no safety bars there. They just don't have them except on the newer high-speed lifts. Then when I come out to New England, they have them, and I just sort of get in the habit of putting it down. And now as a, I've, at some point, I've gotten afraid of heights, so I like having it down. So I always have the bar down. So I'm coming up to the top of the hill, and I flip the bar up maybe, I don't know, 15 feet before the end of the lift. And this 
Lifty at the top just starts screaming at me, like like fiercely angry, as though I had just stolen his car or something. He's like, hey, you, put up the bar, put the bar back down. Don't raise it till this sign. And I was, I didn't even know he was talking to me at first because he was being such a jerk. And, uh, you know, he literally stops the lift when I get off. And he's like, come back here. And I didn't. I just skied off. So, you know, they didn't want you to put it up until you got right to the sign. And, and, and I got that. Of course, I got the message. But all night, I see them doing this to everybody. I complain about this on social media. This is echoed by a lot of people who had similar experiences. So to me, I, you know, I'm sort of the secret shopper of skiing. And I, when I'm skiing around and I see this kind of thing, I'm like, all right, this is a problem. This is not a place where I want to be or I ever want to go back to. But I know you have a different take on this. So there you go. You can defend Ski Ward's honor, Sean. <laughs> We've been sparring. You and I have been sparring good humoredly about this on on uh, on Twitter and I mean, all right, so let me make this couple points. Um, Ski Ward is seven miles from crack houses in the second biggest city in uh, New England. This place makes a nub's knob look like Aspen Snowmass, all right? You know, you're seven miles from downtown Worcester, all right? It's in a nice suburb, but it's a rough-and-tumble place, okay? So a, a teenager fell off a chairlift uh, eight years ago and died. That's another thing. So I was there that day earlier with his um, ski race training. He was, he was a ski, high school ski racer. So the skier, ski ward, I, I listened to your great podcast with Chad Leinbaugh, the, the GM of uh, Sundance the other day, and he made the point that uh, Sundance is um, more than a place. It's a feeling. Well, ski ward is a place, not a feeling. <laughs> There's no experience, ski experience. This isn't, uh, you know, Breckenridge. This isn't even Mount Peter. This isn't even, this isn't Nub Knob, this isn't even Buck Hill. All right. This is about as elemental as it gets. If they were truly unfriendly, people would stop coming and they don't. They do huge volume. They're a feeder area for what you sit there. There's no frills at Ski Ward. There's cheap lift tickets, a couple of lifts, you ski, it's close to your house, that's it. There's no hot tubs, there's no massages, there's no lattes. There's a lot of kids from high school and younger, I mean, boisterous would be a mild way of putting it. And so I had never been yelled at. I, I coached in, at, at, at Ski Ward three nights a week for three years, and I was never yelled at. I, but I yelled at a lot of kids. I found myself yelling at some kids on my own team who were like, you know, it, it can get very congested. It can get very dicey there. So you have to have a tight grip on what's going on. That probably leads to the overreaction. And uh, the family that runs the place, the LaCroix, are the nicest people ever. But they're like farmers of snow. It's like, this: we're not giving amenities. We're just giving this little ski area. And so I think the niceties tend to go out the window when you have crowd control. And when you have somebody who died on the lift, and it's mass state law, and most chairlift accidents happen from people raising the bar too soon before getting off. So that's how I explain it, you know, and you don't go to ski ward for the experience. You go to ski ward to ski a few laps or compete in your high school ski race and bring your brown bag lunch. And that's my response. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you can enforce rules and not be a jerk. And I, I think they need to find a better balance. So um, anyway, let's move on. So I was, uh, I was very saddened last year, Sean, to see that your brother Adam had passed away. Um, tell us about Adam. He actually did work in the ski industry. So tell us about him as a person and, and his legacy in the ski industry. Oh, my God. He is 
it's hard to talk about him, uh, you know, just like in a few words. I, I wrote a long obit of him we put out, but um, I don't know. He's been my ski buddy since, you know, I was eight and he was six. He's younger than I was. Uh, he died of a heart attack at age 61. And I was at the ski media event the other night in Boston and I, all these people came up to me and said, I, you know, I worked with your brother. I knew him. I mean, I got calls after he died from people who worked for him at Vale, at Jackson Hole, at Crystal, who says, I've never had a better mentor. I've never met somebody. I mean, he was just a savant with ski area marketing. He had come to ski area management from the advertising business, but that path has been done by others too, like Jeff Hathaway at Magic, for example. But Adam had worked all over the world, then he decided he wanted to get in the outdoor business, so he went to work for uh, Polaris uh, Snowmobiles in Minneapolis and director of marketing, and then he got his first job at, you know, some people would get their first job in, like, the rental operation of Ski Area. Well, Adam, Adam went straight to director of marketing at Vail. Never worked in the ski industry. And he was there as they were transitioning to Vail Resorts. But he just did a phenomenal job at Vail. I mean, after he died, there was an impromptu funeral party for him that drew, you know, 150 people. And he hadn't even worked there for 10 years. He was just had tremendous work drive. He got up before anybody else, working before anyone else. And just, he, he took his all competitiveness. He was a division one college soccer player for UConn and Columbia University. He was a tremendous athlete. And he took, just took his competitive drive and put it into, into ski, skiing. And he was very creative, loved producing music. So he brought all these big music bands to downtown Vail, downtown Jackson Hole. He was as much of an impresario as he was. His title at uh, Jackson Hole was Chief Marketing Officer, Vice President of Marketing, Chief Marketing Officer. And he, you know, he participated in this whole, the, the Mountain Collective. He was one of the people who made that happen. Um, you know, alliances with other ski areas, big downtown concerts. Yes, making it a place for an experience, not just, a, not just skiing. And then he left Jackson Hole did some marketing work and then was just taking it easy. Decided, oh, I'll go to a, I'll go to one of these uh, ski industry shows. Runs into some people from Crystal who he knew from different walks of life, from other ski ventures, and signed on, you know, late in his career as vice president of business development. So the hard thing about being vice president of business development at Crystal Mountain, Washington, is there's no land to put new business on. So he had a lot. He had some challenges, but he did a good job, and he was promoted. Pretty soon, close to before he died last April, to VP of Sales and Marketing and Business Development and Skier Services. So he basically ran everything that uh, Frank DeBerry did run. The I think Frank's CEO or president now. Yeah. And That's so true. you know, Adam was Frank's right hand man. He was just a marketing savant, and he I had interviewed Adam in my column on the record over the years, and it's not a conflict of interest because it's my column. And he was just a, a great interview. And I, I ran a story in February, three months before he died, talking about the Crystal bus program. They have a big transportation problem. They got national headlines. And his acerbic dry sense of humor was, I said, well, Adam, I asked him, like, what about alcohol on the buses? He goes, oh, no, you know, no beer or alcohol on the buses. I go, well, sometimes do you think it's done? He goes, there's never been an incident to my knowledge of any beer being on any of the buses. And he goes, but it depends on how uh, lenient the bus driver is. So I quoted about that. He wasn't afraid to push the boundaries of what he, he understood that skiing can be, you know, a rough and tumble sport too. And he, um, I don't know, he's, if you talk to anybody who knows him, like I ran to Christian Knapp the other night, who's the VP of marketing for PGRI, which just bought JP. 
he was director of marketing at Keystone when Adam was director of marketing at Bell. And so they worked together a lot. And he just, he, he, he thought, uh, he told me the ski industry has lost one of its best thinkers and he was having a tremendous impact at Crystal, which, you know, their, their emergence coincided with Adam's arrival there. Not that he was the one who did it, but they, they just popped. When, when he got there, he told me, like, he'd come from Jackson Hole. He goes, Sean, you've got to come out here. It's, like, unbelievable. It's, like, it's almost like a Jackson Hole here. And you're out in this gorgeous, you know, mountain here. Just put his head down and worked and, and was just really creative and a fun guy and uh, a bit of a reckless skier. I've, I've seen him injure himself any number of times skiing. <laughs> just a great guy, and everybody loved him. And, uh, no, it's a huge loss for you and huge loss for the ski industry, Sean. And my condolences. I'm very sorry to you and to your family. Um, you know, let's pick up on what you just said about PGRI, Pacific Group Resorts, buying Jay Peak. What was your reaction to that and JP ending up in that family? Do you think that was a good move? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm among those who big cheerleader for PGRI. Uh, their CEO came on in the first year of COVID with a ski riders association. Uh, he was on a Zoom meeting with us and none of us really knew who they were. They, we knew that they had bought Ragged and good reports from the Ragged people. And he was, seemed like a different kind of CEO and a different kind of ski ownership group. Skier focused, not bottom line focused. Uh, one question I have is, how are they going to, you know, recoup their investment? That's a tall order, 75 million bucks, something like that. And their other big uh, challenge, and I was talking to Christian about this and he agreed, is, is managing their numbers. You have a huge amount of pent up demand in Quebec, which is closer than any other population center to come over. And they could be mobbed. They could be running into jail-like problems there. So how are we going to manage the the, the crowds uh, on weekends? And during the week, they want more people. So interesting to see how J, how PGRI will handle that dynamic. So their one advantage of being part of a resort group now is, yeah, Jay's no longer independent. There, It does have the support of a broader group, including – a couple of ski areas in the southeast, which are actually super profitable. I was surprised to see this at the uh, ski areas in New York. They did a little presentation the NSAA did. And the region that gets the most dollars per skier visit is actually in the southeast. So PGRI has two resorts down there, Wintergreen and Wisp in uh, Virginia and Maryland. And then they also have Ragged. And the company recently announced some reciprocal deals between all those. So pass holders at Ragged and the others will get four days at J-Peak. And JP pass holders essentially get a season pass at the other resorts. Focusing on Ragged in particular, Sean, with JP season pass holders now having basically a Ragged pass with some holiday blackouts, how good do you think this will be for Ragged? Because this is a ski area that in a very competitive New Hampshire has really stayed off the radar, but it has a really nice lift system, really nice glades when they have snow. And I, I feel like a lot of J pass holders don't necessarily live in Northern Vermont. They live you know, in the, in the population areas of the South. And now on those weekends when they can't get up to J, maybe they'll say, Hey, let's go check out Ragged. Do you think that this will be good for Ragged as well? I do. And especially Boston, the Boston crowd to Ragged. For New York area people making a detour going to Ragged, I'm sure you'll have some like ski safari types who want to try it out. But for Boston, it's genius because 
it's such a quick drive from Boston. It's like under two hours. It's a no-brainer if you can't get up to Jay because that's still a bit of a haul. So that's the flip side of the reciprocal arrangement between Ragged and, and Jay. As far as Jay, um, Ragged Pass holders, correct me if I'm wrong, get four free days and then 50% off. And in my mind, that's enough. That's fair. And, and they will go up there. But as a lot of your your podcast uh, interviewees have said over the years, people buy season passes in the area they're at because that's where they want to ski the most. I, I did hear through the grapevine that there was some squawking among the ragged customer base that they, quote unquote, only got four days at Jay. But, you know, Jay doesn't need to up its numbers from ragged and most ragged people aren't going to do more than four or five days up there. So, yes, it's a it's a win win for ragged and Jay. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was a good deal. And, and it was actually more generous than what I was expecting, to be honest with you. So that leaves us, Sean. We finally have Jay Peak with this whole receivership scandal in the rear view. And we, we don't really have to think about it anymore. However, former sister resort Burke is still in this weird limbo. So we have a, I think probably to me, that this was probably the best possible outcome for Jay Peak. So it has a stable owner with some resources, but it's it's still going to be not a Vail or Altera resort. So so you still do have that diversity, which I think is super important in ownership, just to to keeping competition honest. So, but what do you think is is going to happen with Burke, and what do you hope happens with Burke? Ooh, it is a little sad that they're still owned by the receiver. The only good thing I say about that is that the receiver did a really good job of preserving the asset that was Jay, and the same with Burke. They don't have the financial engine that Jay has. They don't have a water park. They don't have other activities. They have a little hotel and they're just as isolated as Jay. I mean, even before the bankruptcy, it's a tough one because it's not a big money-making mecca. It's a pure ski purist mountain and racing mountain. So I, I don't know how long they can go along with the, um, with the um, receiver, but I know that a lot of the ski groups and ski clubs that still exist around New England, they're one of the few uh, resorts that still gives great group deals. So that's a significant source of revenue for them. When the big guys, Altera and Vail Resorts, have cut back on all that, not giving good group discounts, Burke still does. So, and they still have Burke Academy, a ski racing program there. So I don't know who's going to buy them. It's not going to be Vail or Altera. Uh, could it be PGRI? A nice synergy there. It seems like they're a little tapped out. I, I just don't know who who would buy it. So that just leaves us with, you know, if it's not going to be one of the big groups, then you have to hope it's the right either, you know, fund or individual with good intentions that isn't going to change it to, you know, for example, Q Burke. <laughs> oh, my God, Q Burke. You know what was the worst thing about Q Burke? It went down to the bottom of the list alphabetically. It went from B to Q. I remember the marketing people were just, you know, incredibly pissed at that. <laughs> oh, what a terrible move. All right. Let's, so we'll, we'll see how Burke sorts out. And hopefully we're talking about the new owner on Burke next year because we're, we're doing this every year on Thanksgiving week, uh, Sean and I decided, um, is uh, we, had, we had a little mess at Gunstock up in New Hampshire this summer. And, I, you know, when Tom Day and his team stood up and resigned at that commission meeting, and I think it was either late June or early July, I thought that was it. I, I didn't think they would ever be back. The public uproar was such that they were back in place in a couple weeks, and they now have a 
friendly quorum of commissioners that I think it's stable for now. So kind of stepping back here, Sean, do you think that gun stock is in a stable position and has truly emerged from this drama that we saw over the summer where there were some commissioners who were who had seized control who had some really different ideas for how to run gun stock than how it's traditionally been run? Well, that whole brouhaha reflected some long simmering uh, divisions in that community, mostly over public ownership. And I, when you asked me last year what, what I thought would be the future of their ambitious expansion plan, I, I just thought, no, no way, because it can be tangled up in county politics, and which what happened. Ironically, though, the Republican governor, John Sununu, I thought was the guy who broke that logjam and came to the side of the management, not the crazy fellow Republican commissioners. I do, in my gut, feel that county ownership is not the best long-term owner for that that great ski area. And I don't see how they can finance that ambitious development with mostly taxpayer funds. I just don't see it happening unless it would move to state ownership. So the state's done a really good job under Sununu with Cannon, right? So I think they could do an equally good job with Gunstock. That said, Gunstock is just a unique place. I hiked up the backside of there this summer, and the views there are just unbelievable. It's almost like the St. Lawrence Seaway up in Quebec. It's just this massive expanse of lake water. So I don't know. It's I, I don't see that huge expansion program, but are they stable? Yeah, for now. They have to decide if county ownership is going to be the best. I know county ownership has created a lot of turnover there over the years with GMs. You know, you have to not only run a ski area, but you have to play politics too. So that's hard. What about the alternative of maybe county ownership, but leasing it to a private operator as the state does with Mount Sunapee, which they also own, but Vail Resorts operates and Canon, obviously the state owns and operates. So you have two different models operating within the same state. And, and I acknowledge that Sunapee had some issues last year, but but do you think that model could work as maybe an intermediary step between selling the ski area? Sure. I mean, a lot of places have that model. Wachusa leases their ski area from the state. Yeah, that could work. Uh, I mean, Vale Resources is not the right company to run that, but yeah, I think that could work. I mean, it does not need a lot of, a lot of investment. And see, that's why I thought their expansion plan is like at first bring it up to snuff, then expand. It, it just it has old lifts, not the best snowmaking, not enough stuff to bring people from out of the area there. So I think they first need to figure out how to invest in what they have. PGRI would be a good one for that. Uh, and Sunapee, you know, that, that was pretty shocking to me how that happened last year. Uh, the GM there who I interviewed – he somehow emerged, though. I interviewed him last year. He's still there, I believe. I can't remember his name. But he, he's still well-liked, even though what happened last year with parking. I mean, the parking problem at Sunapee was an accident waiting to happen. They don't have enough parking. They just don't have enough parking. And for the Vale Resorts critics say, well, Vale makes things busy on weekend. I've been skiing Sunapee for 20 years. It is mobbed on weekends every year. Every year. No different under Vale. Uh, maybe maybe a few hundred, couple hundred more on weekends, but people around here know don't go to Sunapee on weekends. <laughs> yeah. All right, well let's let's get into Vale a little bit. So I, I think what magnified those traffic backups at Sunapee was just that everywhere you looked, 
in New Hampshire, Vail was seemed to be struggling. They did not open crotched fully. They had two days a week when they were fully closed. They severely curtailed night skiing, which is just so crucial to the culture there at crotched. You go upstate to Attach and Wildcat, and the snowmaking really seemed to lag. Terrain openings really seemed to lag, and there were a lot of crowds. So, so talk about the issues that Vale had last year and how much of that was perception and social media mob mentality and how much of that was reality. Cause you're a guy who's been skiing these mountains for a long, long time. I do. I mean, Attach and Wildcat are my go-to mountains. I've been renting a room up there for years and I've been on the race circuit with my son up there and also Crotchet is a great place to go. If what you said is too busy, just keep going up the road. A lot of Worcester area people go there and those three, but I kind of, in retrospect, see those three as the bastard stepchildren of, of Peak Resorts. And Bell, in my mind, just got those because uh, they, they were thrown in in the deal. They couldn't say no. They couldn't separate them out. So uh, they're, they're not part of the Vail model. They're not the urban strategy. They don't fit into Vail's worldview. But Vail Resorts has made a, a distinct point of saying, we've never sold a skier. Some people thought they should have with Wildcat. because I, I don't think they knew what they had with Wildcat and Attach and Crotchet. And I, they bungled it badly, coupled with the worst weather year for skiing in a decade at Attach and Wildcat, coupled with COVID, lack of staffing, and Vail's vaccine mandate. So people didn't realize that Vail had this vaccine mandate the last few years, it made it even harder to compound the staffing shortage. And it was brutal at Wildcat and Attach. And then you take Wildcat, right, which is up there, the White Mountains, best view in the East, Mount you see Tuckman Ravine, all that. Their snowmaking system is from the Middle Ages. Um, <laughs> right. they're, they're, you can get as many new energy-efficient guns as you want, and if your pumping system doesn't work, it doesn't matter. And that's kind of what happened. And also their lift infrastructure is ancient at Wildcat, and their triple didn't work half the time last year. Their fast uh, quad is really old, hasn't been maintained up to stuff, and they have a large that is, I suppose, beloved, but it is an energy nightmare to uh, heat that place and to maintain that place. And there's no resort infrastructure at Wildcat. So Vail didn't know what it had. So I think now Vail has woken up and said, now we know what we have. It's a gem. We're the stewards of it. We have to do something with it. So at Attach, they realized, all right, that's a little more accessible than Wildcat. That's a little bit more in our wheelhouse. There's a resort infrastructure around there. And so they invested in the new lift. And by all accounts, they're going to put it the long-awaited uh, high-speed quad to the summit, or is it a six-pack? Uh, it's, a, it's a quad. It'll be a quad. And to, to replace probably the most hated lift in New England. I've been on that hundreds of times. It's I've been afraid for my life on that thing. Um, I, I've been miserable, psychological despair with 20-minute wind hole. You know, you're dangling above this huge abyss. Um <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's horrible. But uh, so with Attach uh, also has ancient infrastructure, disconnected snowmaking systems, aging, uh, not aging lodges, aged lodges. And um, <laughs> so I, I think they also already put the money, put their money where their mouth is for Attach for going forward. But the other biggest problem in North Conway is, like everywhere, affordable housing. And so it's crazy. There's all these closed motels because it's a big summer area that they should turn into affordable housing. Just the way uh, Mount Snow bought Snow Lake Lodge and made it affordable housing. Just the way Stratton has used these old motels to lease affordable housing. Vail needs to do that up there. 
Okay. So, you know, you, you keep going back to this point of Vail didn't know what they have had and peak resorts didn't really take care of these resorts. And, you know, Vail bought these resorts three and a half years ago. So it's, it's time to figure it out. The biggest indication that I have that Vail still doesn't understand New Hampshire and what it has there is if you go to this Epic Day Pass product, there's three tiers of it. And in the top tier, you can ski, you know, Vail and Beaver Creek and, and Whistler. And then if you go down a tier, there's 32 resorts that are on it. And, you know, you, you lose Vail and, and Brack and Park City, but you still have most of the resorts. Then if you go down to the 22 resort tier, you mostly get, you know, the Pennsylvania ski areas, the Ohio ski areas, the Missouri ski areas, and New Hampshire. Like, what are they doing in there? I'm a Midwest skier, and I, I know the region well, and I respect it. But I'm sorry, skiing at Mad River, Ohio, is not the same thing as skiing at Wildcat. It, it, I just can't wrap my head around why Vail is continuing to bundle these New Hampshire ski areas as sort of bargain destinations. And, and, and that to me is a signal that they still just don't get it. Well, that's, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't thought about that with the Epic um, day pass. I don't know. I still think it just doesn't fit into Vail's urban model. You know, the smaller areas that Vail's acquired mostly fit into that proximity to the big urban center model. And Avatash Wildcat are not the classic ski 93 superhighway Boston areas, right? Those would be Waterville, Loon, even Cannon. To some extent, Gunstock, Ragged. Avatash Wildcat is not like that. You, you fight nightmarish traffic getting there. You clogged up on narrow Route 16. Hard to get to. And North Conway is a great ski town, but it, it's a it's a middle-class, working-class ski town. And so it just doesn't fit into Vail's culture. And I think because of the horrible publicity they received last year, rightfully so, that they've woken up and they're going to give it a try. But who knows? Wildcat could be the first ski area they spin off. Uh, they just might not be able to handle it. So I, you know, personally, I do think that Vail can fix this. I think that they should have a standard and an expectation that anytime you set foot in a Vail resort, you are going to have the best possible experience. There's no reason that Cranmore should be better than Atitash or Wildcat. You or Bretton Woods should be better than Atitash or Wildcat. Vail should be able to run those ski resorts to that standard because you have these operators who have shown that it's possible. So Vail did a number of things this off season to try and fix these operational issues. One was bumping the minimum wage up to $20 an hour, which I have to believe is pretty significant in New Hampshire, maybe less significant in Eagle County, Colorado, but I think that'll make a big difference. And then they're limiting lift tickets every day of the season. Who knows? You know, it's a very opaque process behind what those, you know, what is actually limiting tickets on any given day. And I haven't really seen any sellouts. So what do you think, Sean? Is this going to be enough? These, these different measures the veil is taken, is it going to be enough to fix the operational issues they had last year in New England and in, in New Hampshire in particular? Well, in New Hampshire in particular, crowding is not a problem at Atatash at all. It's not one of the afflictions, the customary Vail Resorts afflictions. Crowding, paradoxically, has been a problem in Wildcat even before Peak bought it because they have one summit left and it's a very popular destination. I think it's going to take commitment on part of Vail Resorts of money to upgrade Wildcat. And it's expensive to upgrade Wildcat because it's you have to bring stuff up the steep mountain pass and not easy to get things there. 
crotchet. I think they've done an about face and realized the little gem that they have there. You know, restoring seven days a week skiing there, restoring the midnight madness night skiing. They need some upgrades there too, just on, on some of the older lifts. But uh, so far, so good. I mean, we'll see as soon as the ski season starts. But uh, one thing they don't have a problem with is at Anatash is crowding, which is really nice. You know, as far as their other New England resorts, Mount Snow, I mean, I can see the Sundance lift yesterday, the new new Sundance lift. Like, I really have high hopes for that, for relieving crowding. I mean, the, the Kank 8, as you've seen at Loon, paradoxically, while increasing the uphill volume, has, to my mind, distributed skiers so much better around the mountain that it's it feels less crowded, even with a, a bigger lift going up. They're spread out much more logically. That's what I hope is going to happen at Mount Snow and Stowe. And they went into it with that good intention. And it, it should happen. It should relieve pressure on the main lifts. So Vale's doing a few things right there. Yeah, so let's talk about these new lifts. There's quite a few new lifts going in around New England. And let's start with the ones at Vale Resorts. So they're putting in a six-pack to replace the Mountain Triple and actually bringing that down to grade instead of making you walk up the hill, which for some reason you liked. But I don't understand that. I'm glad it's coming down. Mount Snow, as you said, they're adding not only the second six-pack on the front side, but um, they're adding a new high-speed quad um, on that backside. That I forget the name of it off the top of my head. And then at Attach, they're replacing the East-West double-double with a fixed-grip quad. And then next year, they have that high-speed lift coming in on the Attach side to replace that Summit Triple. So just talk about those investments and and how they will, will upgrade those mountains and the experience there. Oh, okay. So... Mount Snow is like the poster child for crowding in New England. You could argue Stowe, but probably not because there's ways to escape. Um, so Mount Snow, I think they all went in there with saying, how are we going to deal with that problem? How are we going to open up underutilized intermediate terrain? And so their new lift strategy is designed to do just that. Because the whole side of the mountain uh, in the Sundance, Sunbrook area, was totally underutilized and beautiful area. So that's where the, the quad is going to go. So remains to be seen, but seems like those are going to be great. And the best thing about those two lifts is they're done. They're finished. Unlike a few Vail projects around and unlike the Seven Brothers at Loon, which is still not done. And that's going to have another huge impact. But Stowe, I like that steep walk up because it loosened you up. It got you ready to ski Stowe's gnarly terrain. It separated out the wannabes. If you couldn't make it up that hill, you're never going to make it down national. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. No, but in all in all seriousness, bringing it down to grade is just so good for stuff. That will not only reutilize all that previously unutilized intermediate stuff, but it'll relieve crowding at the summit where people all abilities funneled into a, a one access trail and then peeled off to the right for the intermediate and to the left for the black diamonds. And that's hopefully we'll get rid of that, that bottleneck up there. What do you think's next? Do you think they should upgrade four hundred to a six and, and get rid of that double next to it? Uh yeah, that double, nobody rides that. There's no need for that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I think Mount Mansfield can handle a six. I do. I really do. Especially with the other new lift. You know, there's there's enough terrain coming off the top there. The the question is whether the Adatash uh, high speed quad will overload the summit of Adatash because there's only three or four ways down. Stowe, there's a gazillion ways down. So yeah, I would love I would love to see a six up there and uh, and the other new lifts around. Uh, Waterville has got a new six this year, which is and kind of under the radar. It, it's a it's a sleek design, quiet lift, kind of like the Kent Gate, and that is going to be a game changer of Waterville Valley. 
because, you know, you did have lines developed there. And I, I feel like it'll cut down there. But I don't know. One, one of the things on New England is that it suffered from a night. I know you're, you love a lot of old lifts. And I, I like the cool old ones, too. But overall, given the choice, I'd rather have a new one and a faster one. And you get more skiing in. And that's happening in New England, finally. It's been, the you know, aging. It, it's, it's an old ski culture here. So, obviously, you're going to have long-running lifts. But they needed the investment in new lifts. And you, now we're seeing it everywhere, you know, Saddleback. There is one major new lift, which uh, I know I'm, I'm aware of, but has not made public yet. And uh, you can read about it in my column. Nice. Uh, All right. And, okay. So so that's another reason to, to uh, follow Sean's column and, and tune in the coming weeks. So, look, I you know, I like classic lifts, but I also like new lifts and, and fancy lifts and more important, reliable lifts. And that was really the issue at Waterville Valley was that White Peaks Express just broke down all the time. So having a brand new six pack in it, that does not have obsolete technology that you can easily service is going to be really huge for them. Another really awesome new lift coming in is going to be the Jordan 8 at Sunday River. So what's your reaction to that project after having ridden the Kank 8 last year? That is like uh, a miracle to have that. I mean, that that is so needed. Even in a place that has a gazillion lifts, so needed. It is such a cool lift. Even environmentalists have to love these lifts because they're so quiet and because they're so harmonious with the landscape. They're just beautiful lifts. And if you get if you can get it out of your mind that it's going to overload the slopes in places where that can handle it, these eights are just brilliant. Yeah, one of the points that I had Boyne Resort CEO Stephen Kircher on the podcast last week, and as of this conversation, it's not been published, but it will by the time folks listen to this. And one of the points he made to me was that they were working really hard to get skiers to understand the concept of redistribution because they're also building an APAC at Boyne Mountain in Michigan. And his point was folks are, are seeing these new lifts we're building and they're thinking about it in the context of how the hill currently flows. And he said, yeah, we have a lot of people on Barker right now, but we believe that by putting this new lift on the other end of the resort, we will pull some skiers away from Barker and over toward this terrain, which, by the way, is being the gateway to an expansion that could double Sunday River size. So what's your reaction to that and just thinking about how attached skiers get to what's there and, and just get obsessed with, oh, you have to upgrade Barker, you have to upgrade Barker, rather than thinking, well, maybe what we need to do is draw skiers away from Barker. I think it's a good gamble. Sunday River, um, I gravitate toward Barker as well, maybe because it's the race hill. I don't know. The terrain is great over Barker, but in some places, bigger is better. And Sunday River is one of them with the expansion coming up and all the land they own and all the water they have access to. So bigger can be better. And the same with Loon. You have a really good owner. The only criticism I would have with Boyne is its relative neglect of Sugarloaf. And I talked to Sugarloaf people about that last year, and they do feel like the left out uh, stepchild a little bit, just way underdeveloped snowmaking and lifts. And they, they have a real problem with the summit access there too. No joke. It's closed half the time. Um, best terrain in the East. You can't get to it, but they haven't had the traffic and they didn't have the hotel and condo capacity. So now Sugarloaf's got that West expansion with the 200 new uh, beds. So to address that. And then I think. Eventually, it'll trickle down. The great things that are happening at Loon and Sunday River are going to uh, trickle down to Sugarloaf, too. What do you think Sugarloaf needs? They need to replace Super Quad. Would you like to see a higher capacity lift there? I, I don't know what they can do about the summit. I mean, it's it's the second highest uh, 
mountain and either in Maine or in New England, it's it's just really exposed. Do you, do you think that that's a, a environment problem or do you think that they could actually fix that with a, a heavier lift like they're doing with Jordan A? So what, what do you think that, that Boyne needs to do a sugar loft upgrade? That yes, upgrade, yes, upgrade the super quad. You get huge lines on that thing. People say there's no lines at sugar loft. Well, there is on the super quad. The summit, I don't know. Not a lift uh, engineering expert, but something closer to the ground, heavier and below tree line, if possible. There is a little known uh, summit T-bar. Is it a T-bar or a Palma at uh, Shulov? Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to check. But you have to um, you have to take the, the quad to get there. I don't know. I just think that's the best terrain in the east right up there. Some of the best terrain in the east, maybe the best. And it'd be nice to have a lift to get there all the time. Yeah, when, when, when Sugarloaf is firing, I think it's as good as anything. So Boyne is, as you mentioned, really investing heavily in Loon. You had Kanke going last year. This year... They're putting, they're moving the old Kank 4 over to Seven Brothers. And I had Loon General Manager Brian Norton on the podcast recently. And he said, you know, we're really underselling ourselves. This is not just moving a lift. This is basically a new lift. Doppelmeyer has rebuilt it. Next year, the Scaria has announced they are putting in a South Peak expansion with a lift that will go down to those escape route parking lots, serves around 600 cars. So finally connecting that resort with a lift to the rest of the mountain. What do you make of this huge investment in Loon and the momentum there right now? Oh, I got to be a cheerleader on this one. That, again, is just a brilliant move, tying it into the town because it's always been divorced from the town of Lincoln. And I think it'll help the town become more of a real ski town connected. And, um, you know, they have a big parking problem at Loon, uh, limited space and underutilized 600 spots over there. They just have that great bank of, of mountains and they're developing all of it and it's feels right uh it feels right i mean and, and you know they're the most accessible big resort in the east so you know they've got the business it's like i've been skiing loon for a long time and until recently it's been pretty miserable all weekends i mean you didn't need the rise of the of super ski area owners to create overcrowding there you always had it my only thing is to ski smart and to ski against the grain of traffic and head over to North Peak first thing when it's icy. Don't wait. Ski there when it's empty and then work your way back and only ski the gondola at lunch. By the way, that's the only gondola in New England that still looks like a Soyuz spacecraft. Right. Uh, now the the uh, um, Wildcat one is mothball. Yeah, the the, four, the it's a four person gondola for listeners who may not be familiar with that lift. So you know, Loon has a really ambitious plan, Sean. It, it's they call it Flight Path Twenty Thirty, and that plan calls for a gondola upgrade, a an upgrade to the North Peak Express Quad, which is really only not even a twenty year old lift, and also the South Peak Express Quad, which is only dates to two thousand seven. Thinking about that plan, and, and then Brian Norton laid out for me that there are still significant expansion opportunities in Loon's master plan. What would you like to see as upgrades to those lifts that I just mentioned, and just to Loon in general as this continue as this scenario continues to evolve? Well, you you talked with uh, Brian about East Basin. I, I would like to see that replaced with a, a modern lift like a Skytrack medium speed fixed grip, something like that, or even a, a high speed double. People do, don't realize there is a thing. Um, they have one at Crystal Mountain in the, uh, what do they call it? The Northwoods area. It, it's remarkable. A high speed double. Cool. They, they have one. They have a really good medium speed double at Mittersill in Canada. So put up a high speed double there. That would be lovely. Or medium speed double. It would be safer. You wouldn't be scrunched in, fearing you're going to get 
you know, the bar knock you over the head. And it's East Basin is such great terrain. That's such a great outlet for crowding on some of the other lists. But that said, the Seven Brothers is going to be a game changer and give the train park people their own lift, really, and make that experience a lot better. What would you like to see for upgrades on North, South, and the gondola? Well, North, as you say, is like, I mean, I, th- I think Brian said something about a new lodge there. Yeah, and they're going to put some more trails in, which which I think it could make it so it could theoretically accommodate a six-pack. Yeah, it is fairly li- – the terrain they have over there is great. I mean, two runs, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. And yeah. it's great, but they could use some glade work up there because those I – mean, have you skied in those glades? They're very tight. They're always closed when I'm there. I, I don't think I've ever actually got been able to get in there. But North Peak is a gem. I mean, you, you look toward the Kankamangas Highway – it's just wilderness all of a sudden. You're out of the hustle and bustle of Lincoln. And you, so I think there's great potential there. But Luna's done a really creative job of, of connecting all of its different peaks. And you can get around that mountain really, really easy. Except for, you might have to take that cross mountain hall lift. It's one of Peter Landsman's favorite lifts, by the way, I discovered. But, the Toe Road? Yeah, the Toe Road. Love that. Okay. Love that lift. But uh, North Peak? I do too. I mean, they're doing everything they can in Luna. The lodge there... Could be, oh, I forgot to tell you one funny story about a lodge. You know how out west they don't have the same expectation that they have lodges everywhere the way we do. But Mm -hmm. Crystal is putting in something called the Mountain Commons, part of their this reimagining Crystal thing. And so my brother and I, I talked to him, might have been the last time I talked to him before he died. We were just laughing uproariously because he was telling me all about the new Mountain Common and all this multifunction facility. I go, Adam, that's a base lodge. And he started laughing because he, he knew the marketing speak, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a base lodge. You get hot chocolate there. That's it. Oh, it's a $100 million base lodge though, Sean. Beautiful. I know. I looked at the schematics. It looks really nice. And they do need it. All right. So, uh, oh, gondola, Loon. Do you, do you think that should be an eight-passenger pa- gondola? You think it should be six? What? What do you think they should do with the gondola? Anything but the four. It's six, terrible, isn't it? Six or eight. I mean, talk about COVID. That was the main means of transmission of COVID, I think, in the East. You were like sitting in the, in the other person's lap, literally. <laughs> yeah, it was it was intense. All right. Uh, so, look, everyone loves Magic Mountain. They've been trying to put this black bot in for like literally four years. Um, you know, you got to give some grace to little guys, but eventually you got to be like, come on, guys, like, get this thing live. Do you have any faith they'll finally get Black Quad spinning? Yes, because if I don't, it'll turn to despair. <laughs> it's got, they have to do it. There's a lot of pressure on them. And yeah. um, it, from their own crowd, from people, you know, a lot of goodwill. But Magic has a lot of goodwill. Even when Jeff Hathaway pokes fun at the at the big guys, he does it with a twinkle in his eye. And he's, what they've done there, I've watched what they've done. And they're not in debt. They finance it, any uh, improvements to uh, revenues. And it's such a great strategy for them and for the uh, customers who don't have to deal with high, sky-high ticket prices. And the best thing about Magic is the terrain. And you can still get to the top, if I'm not mistaken, even without the new quad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically redundant with the... With oh, the so if, if Magic is still Magic and doesn't get it up this year, you can still get to the top. Be one more year, but I, I do you have any intel on that? I got to check in with them, but I, I, I my sense is that is that it's going to open. Yeah, you know that's my sense as well. It, it's uh, they were putting the sheaves on the last tower, and we're going to do load testing soon. So you know Jeff's really good with that uh, Alpine update, and you know they've been doing everything they can and have had a lot of bad luck. You know maybe they should have 
contracted the whole workout. But to your point, you know, they're they're running without dead and they've quadrupled their season pass base. So um, another ski area that had a hard time with use lift last year was Catamount and John Schaefer essentially said to me, yeah, that was a mistake to try to do so much with supply chain issues. Looks like they're on pace with those. What do you make of the situation at Catamount? And, you know, that's a scary that's undergone a lot of change really fast. And I think has gotten a lot more volume than maybe they expected. And it's kind of gone through some growing pains, I think. But, but what's your take on Catamount and, and hopefully finally getting these two lifts live? Well, that's probably the most, to me, that's one of the most fascinating stories of rebirth of a New England ski area. I mean, without ever having fully closed, but I skied Catamount in the 90s and it's a completely different ski area now. The new trails that John cut, John Schaefer cut, they're brilliant. Yes, they got really crowded really quick. The New Yorkers discovered, hey, this is like a mini Mount Snow right here. But then um, people discovered Berkshire East too, which I skied Berkshire East for years when you could go on you know, Christmas week with no lines at all. Now there's lines. Indy had something to do with it, although I noticed that they're keeping their Indy affiliation and you know, Berkshire East needs more skiers. Um, Catamount probably needs to cap things until they get the lift situation straightened out. But great terrain up there and so pretty easy for New Yorkers to get to. And John Schaefer, if you know him and you do, his personality, it's like he has so much capacity for work that maybe he took on too much work all at the same time. Because don't forget they were running Hermitage and Basquet as well. And there were uh, advantages in terms of uh, economies of scale and, you know, putting mechanics on a, on a circuit and stuff like that, but maybe took on too much. Yeah, they did introduce some blackouts on Indy, which they never had before, uh, just for the MLK and President's Weekends, but we'll see how that works. I think, I don't believe they did Christmas week blackouts. All right, before we move on and talk about two final projects here in New, in New England, resort projects, where else would you like to see new lifts in New England, Sean? Like, what's, what's your wish list as you ski around? Ooh, I, I mean, I would love to see like a medium speed fixed quad at Cratchit over uh, Looker's right, right outside the lodge. So you can go up to that side of the hill right there. That's an obscure uh, wish item. I think Sugarbush is really overdue for some new lifts. Especially that super long one. <laughs> you got to do something about that. Uh, what's that called again that goes up to Lincoln Peaks? It's, it's the Slab Brick Express. Something's got to happen there. I, I mean, what can they do, though? It's a two-mile it long. Maybe take it out and, and have another solution. Uh, maybe a gondola. It should be a gondola. Maybe. Uh, it's cold there. The gondola would help a lot. I mean, also, the two summit lifts are not the most reliable. They are replacing the triple on the Lincoln Peak side, I think, next year with a fixed grip quad. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'll, I'll double check that for anyone's listening uh, for the article that goes on stormskiing.com for this. Yeah, I, I don't know on the Mount Allen side of any plans to upgrade the, the summit lift over there, though. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing a high-speed six at Ward. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> the, I don't know, uh, Brookshire East. Oh, do you know the Brookshire East, uh, the one on exhibition, that ancient quad that runs close to the ground there? That needs to be replaced with uh, just another uh, modern fixed grip quad. I'd like to see that because that's fun terrain over there. Because there, there's terrain over there to, to lookers right off of that lift. There's some really nice trails in there. One called Hemlock, which is beautiful. They cut that. And I'd like to see Berkshire East resuscitate their expansion. 
to the side as you're looking up the mountain where they cut new trails and they need a lift over there. And we give them more vertical in, in the semi-fake vertical sweepstakes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Catamount lift projects delayed but did not end that expansion plan at Berkshire. I, my understanding is they still intend to do it. I, they just don't have a firm timeline. What, what do you make of Smugs, Sean, from a lift point of view? I was up there last year skiing around. I, I think the lifts are fine. They're charming. They have their appeal as a throwback ski area. I don't think it's hard to make an argument for upgrading, but what's your take? Ooh, this can get me in hot water with the smugglers, uh, second homeowners, and people who love it as it is because the series of doubles up there, it keeps crowding on the hill, minimum, right? But contrary to popular uh, perception, there are lift lines that smugs. I don't know. Eventually, you're not going to be able to fabricate every part you need. You're going to have to. It just needs the lift upgrades. I mean, I think the... People are being alarmist. They think you're going to ruin the character of smugs by replacing one or two lifts. You can, again, put up the medium speed fixed grip lifts. You can do it thoughtfully. There's ways to make thoughtful improvements, keep the experience pretty much what it is. You're, you're still going to have, it's off the, the major highway infrastructure, so you're not going to have crowding, even if you replace them with a fixed grip or even a high-speed quad. And the big downside to these ancient doubles is you don't ski as much. I'm sorry. It's just math. You don't get as much skiing in. And, you know, these days people like to cruise and do high-speed laps. Uh, it's kind of hard doing a lot of high-speed laps at Smugs, also because the terrain is so great and so steep. But I don't know. I just wish that – I wish they would get a couple of modern lifts. I really do. And I think locals are going to hate me for saying that. But <laughs> what, what, what would you do if you had, you know, you more Sterling and Madonna? You have really old uh, hall doubles servicing all of them. I mean, would you go – I mean, I would almost think go high speed on uh, on Morse just to ease the beginner experience for loading purposes, and then maybe you go carpet loader on uh, on Madonna and, and Sterling. I mean, what, what what do you think? Yeah, carpet loader is great. I mean, that's another thing that gets a bad impression. <laughs> they work, you know. They once you get the hang of it, and as long as there's more advanced skiers, I don't know. It just change smugs for the better. You're, you're never going to have overcrowding there. So why not put up a modern lift? I think part of it is, you know, capital. You need capital. And and also, it's a purest place for people who like things the way they are and the way they have been. But I just coming from the print newspaper industry, you know, you can't stick with what's always worked in, in the past. I, I feel like that's a losing strategy into the, into the future. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Smugs evolves over the next several years. All right, last two things for you here. I want to ask you first about Big Moose which is a really weird situation. So up in Maine, northern Maine, I mean, think past Sugarloaf even uh, by a couple hours, there's a ski area that's currently known as Big Squaw. It's on Big Moose Mountain. And it, like a lot of ski areas, it has a lower mountain and an upper mountain. The upper mountain has been out of commission for lift service since, I think, 2004, when that lift had a breakdown and the owner, James Confalone, just never fixed it. The lower mountain, the whole place was abandoned for a while. Then the lower mountain, which I think is served by a triple, was resuscitated by a group known as Friends of the Mountain. They they were friends of uh, Big Squaw, but they got rid of that. They don't didn't like the Squaw name, so they, they changed their name to Friends of the Mountain. So they've kept that going and they leased the property for, I think, a dollar a year. There was a developer that had big plans. They were going to come in, put a six-pack in to resurface the upper mountain, redevelop the resort. Last week, that deal fell apart. So really curious to get your reaction on Big Moose, Big Squaw, 
and the current state of the mountain. And if you think there's a future up there to bring back the full lift surf skiing experience in a meaningful way. Well, I read your piece on that and you headlined it. The, the owner, I think he's the property owner, you turned him, you called him an idiot, uh, blocking development. And that was an understatement. Um, <laughs> like just the height of hubris and greediness to stop this. I mean, that part of Maine needs jobs too. And talk about view. I mean, the top of that mountain is like unbelievable view. I mean, just beautiful. And Maine is really oddly underdeveloped in the ski business, you know. It's got so much places that it could host, and this would be one of them. And Bangor is a decent market, it's the biggest city in Maine. So I, I think it's going to happen there. You know, he's going to cave. Something's going to happen because I think fans of the mountain are going to keep up the pressure. And some of, some of the media blowback against the owner, landowner, that's who it is, right, the landowner? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Well, James Canfalone is the owner. He's a, a Florida-based fellow, and the state fined him all kinds of, you know, several million dollars for all kinds of illegal activity. Great place to, and, be, um, to be from, based in Florida, if you're in the ski business, by the way. And um, <laughs> Ariel Curios paved that. Uh, yes, he, that he sure did, and that and that worked out great. So we'll see. Right, right now, Canfalone is um, appealing the state's decision. And that's what held up the deal. And with this developer being out, who, who actually may have also been based, I think, in Louisiana, oddly, um, you know, they're just going to have to find someone else. And I, I don't know that they're going to find someone else that wanted to do the $130 million or whatever. How about the Saddleback group? How about the group that bought Saddleback? Uh, yeah, I think they have their hands full of Saddleback. I, I, you know, I don't know that that place is making money yet. And I don't know if they are ready to lay out for another ski area until they figure out how to run the one they have. I, I don't know. I just would love to. I've never skied the former Big Squaw, but I would love to ski there. Yeah, me too. All right, last topic for you today, and then I'll let you go. Uh, balsams, where are we at? Oh, boy. All right, so Les Auden is an unstoppable force who may have finally been stopped. A visionary. I He and I went to the same high school in New Jersey, by the oh, way. No way. Yeah, I found that out when I met him um, at the Boston Ski Show. Uh, you know, it's just too many permits. Like, I think at one point it was like 100 or more. And just too much too much going against him in so little time. Less is in the end, latter part of his career. You know, and then there is the phenomenon of do we need an, a ski area up there? And I think we do because of its geography and, and terrain. And its snowfall, I think it's... Pretty up there, right? Isn't it 200 inches plus? Yeah. So I'm hoping I'm hoping for it, but you haven't heard a lot of publicity about it lately. You know, every year, Les Otten would say, oh, we've got 10 more permits and we've got this agreement and that agreement. And I don't know. It's like even in New Hampshire, which is pretty developer friendly, I don't think so. I, the local towns have so much power, you know? Yeah, it would actually, they, they were billing it as that it would be the largest ski area in the East if it were to fully open. And the terrain looked awesome, and you're right. It seems to sit in that little snow pocket. And to the whole question of, well, would you drive past Waterville and Cannon and and Loon to ski there? I mean, people drive past Sugarbush and Mad River and Stowe and Smugglers Notch to ski Jay, and there's a reason why. It's better skiing. So, you know, I, I think that if you could get past that red tape, you could have a – a sustainable business model. I mean, New Hampshire does need more capacity as, as we were talking about with Loon and with Waterville, they have some crowding issues and, and Sunapee. So there are people who will drive farther 
to have a better experience. By the way, do you know, I have to look into this, but is Kenny opening or not? Um, it, reopening? Or they anything? keep saying so. I, I keep, maybe you all have better luck than me since you're more in the neighborhood, but they've, I've reached out to them several times with interview requests and they've declined everyone. Um, they're fairly active on their Facebook page and, and indicate that they're doing the work to open. Um, you know, I hope so. Yeah, there would be one. Uh, the, 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 you know, the Plymouth, the college town can support it, I think. But, um, well, the, the comeback of Wellback has been a nice, has been a nice story too. So it, it has. And, and, you know, the one I feel better about than Tenny is Granite Gorge. I talked to Keith Kreischer, the, general manager down there for the new ownership group. And that guy has so much passion and really is keyed in and understand what it's going to take to bring it back. And it, it's also just a smaller, simpler operation than Tenny. And it, it has a more ready market there in Keene. So I feel really good about Granite Gorge. I feel really unsure about Tenny. Uh, I, I feel like Balsams is you really need kind of an angel investor to come in and pump some money into that thing to get it moving. But you're right. That, that area up there at the balsams, they need jobs, they need economic development. And, and this would provide it. It's sort of the same situation at big squad. Yeah. So I don't know. Those are, those are the things to keep us in business in the East writing about in the future, but you've got the whole country to write about now. So <laughs> well, you got you have plenty of uh, plenty of stories. So, all right, let's let's let the listeners out of this because they've been uh, they've been with us for about two hours now. So, I appreciate it, Sean. I appreciate you so much. Uh, let's make some turns as soon as I can get back on skis, uh, which I think I have a little little bit of time before I'm able to keep up with you again. So, uh, but thanks so much. Let's do this every year. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate it. That's Sean Sutner, snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com. Sean, let me go ahead and speak for all of us when I say that was awesome. Even if you're one of these boneheads who has to beat your chest about how you'll never ski east of Summit County, Colorado, you have to admit that Sutner is a pro who is covering an important ski region with the depth, integrity, and nuance it deserves. So, thank you very much for that, Sean, and thank you all for listening. I am still catching up here on the podcast, and I have a few more headed your way very soon. Next year is stacked. The leaders of Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Palisades Tahoe, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peaks, and Stephens Pass are all scheduled to drop in on the Storm Skiing Podcast in the first half of 2023. The very fastest way to get those episodes is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.